Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and I am absolutely, I don't even know what words to use, thrilled, delighted, honoured, a little bit terrified to have my former manager. Mr. David Feets with me, who I admire immensely, and I'm so pleased that he's agreed to come on and be a guest today. I'm not going to do him justice by introducing him, so I'm going to say hello, David, and you let me know, and my listeners, who you are and what you do. Hi, everybody, and hi, you. Basically, the background of me is a nurse by background, a learning disability nurse, and I've been qualified now for 30 odd years. 30 years, I think it is. Yeah, 30 years this year, which is, um, quite frightening. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. We worked together about 15 years ago, it is now. No, thank not 15 no, it about seven or eight years ago. Um, it's 15 years when I started. So yeah, quite a long time. Um, I'm also a homeopath, part-time, very part-time. And I also tutor with the um, School of Homeopathy down in Gloucestershire. We tutor students as well from around the world. So we have an international student basis. So from Australia to Hong Kong to America, only about three in the UK and a lot in Finland at the moment, so a whole cohort in Finland. So, yeah, quite a varied quite a varied role. That's exactly what I was thinking about. So this morning as I was coming into my clinic, thinking about the day ahead, I was just thinking what a varied kind of life you lead and how many different hats you're on. Because I know when we worked together, we were in a team for people with learning disabilities, so it was a community team, and we provided support to adults, didn't we? But even when you were doing that job, you had other hats on as well. And obviously, as we got to know each other, I got to know you. And obviously, all of these years later, now I'm kind of working independently and doing my podcast, you were one of the first people that I thought of to come on and talk about the adversity that you've been through. Because although on some episodes, I've focused just on specific types of adversity, what I really want to show people is that sometimes we have multiple things happen in our life. Sometimes they may all be at the same time, they may be in succession. And how do we handle those? What do we perhaps learn about our coping skills? What do we perhaps realise about in terms of how that may shape our lives and the course that our lives take? So your story came to mind straight away and I reached out hoping that you would, a little bit of secret fingers crossed that you would agree to come on. What I'm really interested in is your childhood and you yeah. said you're comfortable talking about that and I think it will resonate with many because it kind of started you on your journey of kind of self-discovery didn't it and it did and shaping think, the person you are now exactly and I think it's quite interesting because there was something there's an adversity at the start of school the schooling age of about four and then there was adversity at the ending of school at 15 so it was quite sort of like a right yes sandwich basically yeah of adversity so I think I had a really good childhood parent-wise and brothers-wise and stuff like that. Um, but I think really the, the first experience that I can remember back being, not being diagnosed with, but going through treatment of Hodgkin's lymphoma state level, stage four at the time. So it's both sides of my diaphragm. And it's extremely rare for a child to have it then. It's 1974, so that's um, 48 years ago now. And I had my spleen removed and I had some lymph in my neck removed. 
And although I didn't know what was happening to me, because sort of I wasn't the brave one, if you want, if you want for a bit of expression, my parents seeing me go through it were the brave ones because they had to help pin me down when I had chemotherapy done in my forehead at the time because mm. my veins, I wouldn't sit still long enough. I was struggling, so they stuck it in the forehead. So, yeah, that was quite a quite a powerful preschool experience from being separated from mum and dad and being in the hospital to all the follow-ups that still continue today. Yes. So, so that it isn't just a discreet episode in time isn't it and, oh. and actually what I'm thinking about as well it isn't just about the actual treatment but it's the impact the memory how much you were able to process at that age as well but also of course <clears throat> what it would be like being a parent seeing yeah. a child going through that yeah and I always think of I always think of the parents when I see something on the news or whatever because the parents have got the parents are helpless at that point and I've the next one which we'll talk about is I was helpless at that so I'm I've got a sort of a sense of what my parents were going through at the time because they had three children at the time I was the youngest so I I think at one time they bought a caravan to live down the road from the hospital on because those days didn't even have parent accommodation and stuff like that and also not an experimental treatment because that's not sort of it wasn't that pioneering but it's a treatment that they don't use much now which was mop chemotherapy which is basically one of the chemicals was mustagen which is like the chemical weapon they used so I can still remember that smell that's one of the things that comes back is um if I smell anything not not mustard because I actually love mustard if there was a smell of something I know when I worked in Croydon I was in at the hospital I would walk past the, the chemo unit and I couldn't ever go into that unit and everybody who I worked with knew I couldn't, so I'd never go to a meeting in there because the smell I would just vomit. So if I so smell this memory, yeah. so powerful, yeah. So um, it, you know, it's it's just one of those things because because it was so on my forehead and I could smell that poison going in. That's what it smelled like. Yeah. Is I very very rarely get that smell, but if I do, I know it because it is like a heave ho kind of kind of reaction to it. Yeah. So well, when um, we look at that psychologically, that. That's your brain's way of protecting you because that smell is associated with that yeah. quite traumatic experience, I imagine, yeah, as well. Exactly. And I just think, and also, I, it's sort of affected in two other major ways. Really. One, which I call the beast, which we'll come back to, is um, but the, my, I went to acupuncture and this acupuncturist asked me if I was enjoying the treatment. And I went, yes, why? She goes, well, you don't look relaxed. So if I lay on a couch, like a treatment couch or something. Yes. And I have to lay facing up. I'm rigid. <laughs> I'm like, you know, like that. Just sort of, because it, it just brings back memories of me being on a trolley at that age with people over me, sort of like just powerless. And it's, so it's really funny because if I go to a treatment for acupuncture, I'd rather than do my back. Because if I lay on my front, I'm fine. I sleep on my front as well. So it's just this, this, whole association with a trolley or a couch and people looking over me and i wonder if there's um, something isn't there about that human beings we like control don't we and we fear situations where we're not in control and our brain's really good at remembering situations even if four-year-old you might not be able to remember maybe visually even some elements that the body retains memories as well doesn't it and as you say smells sounds all sorts of subtle things yeah so that's um the interesting one but i think at the time if you look at the statistics of that cancer at that time and childhood, it was only a 40% survival rate. So I just right. feel so lucky 
that yeah. I was here. And whatever treatment they had, you know, at the time isn't isn't good for people now, but that's all they had at the time. So I'm just grateful that it worked, really. But the, the checkups I have are still every two years. Yeah. And they were yearly. And it was I remember the conversation with my consultant. Oh, I'm going to see you two yearly now. And I was so excited. <laughs> and he said, David, he said, you've taken 40 years to get here. Most people nowadays do it in three to five. <laughs> but I was so pleased that it was a two-year checkup, not a yearly one. Because I, this, I find it extremely stressful. And that's another thing. It's called the beast. I always call it the beast. So he's, and my, and this is quite um, relevant for the timing of this being sort of July, because my checkup is the beginning of October right. and the beast is slowly on the shoulder as if saying, check your lumps. I've got no, now I know I'm well. I know I'm not losing weight, night sweats or anything like that, or any lumps and bumps and stuff. I know I'm well, but you just dread that time. And uh, from the time of the blood test to the time of getting the results every time you go for a checkup and it's just so you have to yeah. sit with that window and I guess for people listening who might not be familiar the kind of checking that that's looking for possible signs that are of concern so there's certain things you're supported to look at to look out for yeah so I check I check myself for lumps and bumps in lymph glands and stuff like that but the blood test is a full blood count of everything you can think of now in a way that's a positive because I have an MOT every two years and as I'm getting older, that's quite useful to have. Yes. But it's every single thing. So look at markers of secondary tumours, because one of the side effects of the MOP chemotherapy at the time was secondary hard tumours. Right. And so they look, at, they look at that, which is inflammation markers. They do every blood chemistry you can think of. And so it is a, it is a beast on my shoulder. And then he goes back to sleep again. So he never, go, he never disappears. But the first words that have to come out of my consultant's mouth, otherwise I won't listen. But he says, how are you? I just say, I'm not interested. What are the results? Is I want to know everything's okay. And then we can have our nice consultant conversation. <laughs> so the idea like... that that adverse experience is still with you in so many ways. Yeah. But you have that uncertainty now every two years and in the months leading up to it so how do you if it's all right to ask then how do you cope I, I i like the fact that kind of metaphor of the beast i think a lot of people that will resonate with them it could be quite useful to kind of have metaphors for fear yeah. anxiety yeah how do you i cope i don't what know do you i do on with it so part of me sometimes thinks oh discharge myself from the system that's but that that i'm in the system so it's good i am yeah because you, you never know I think it's just something I have to, I just have to let him sleep. So once it's over, he can have his little time on my shoulder or in my ears going, well, when you watch that blood coming into the vial, it might be showing this or it might be showing that. So I have to let him have his time awake, just niggling at me and, you know, just making sure I check every day. And, and you know, even if you've got a cold, you think, is that is that gland going down or, or is it staying up? So I just have to, you have to accept that as the beast. So he's... I have to sort of try and turn him into a bit of a friend for a couple of months. Yes, yeah. And then just let him sleep again and ignore him in between times. But, yeah, it's, um, it's quite handy now. It's telephone conversation, uh, consultations. So you don't, I don't have to hang around with in the haematology department and see other people at different stages of treatment yes, or, yeah. or whatever. So, like, yeah, I've heard people talk about that. Actually, some of those things can be tricky. And, again, just what you were saying before, the smells, the corridors, things that, you know, your, your brain 
might see in terms of memories and threat yeah. mode. Well, it was really interesting what you were saying. And so I do a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy. I find it works so well for so many different presentations. And actually your description of the beast and taking notice of him, but not getting hooked with him. So there he is. And it sounds like, you know, he's taking on that kind of inner critic role. This yeah. is going to happen. Doing a little bit of crystal ball gazing. This could be, that could be all really natural things that our brains do because, you know, it almost wants us to get prepared for things. We don't like uncertainty, do we? I mean, it's not, nobody likes uncertainty. <laughs> But I think it's remarkable that you're able to kind of, in psychology, we use this, you know, lean in. There he is. And he's got a form and you let him chat. But sometimes yeah. you need to be able to say to him, thanks. But yeah, no thanks. I'm yeah. all right. That phone call's happened and everything's yeah. all clear. I'll just ignore him for two years. And it used to be every year, which I'm pleased it's not every year now. Yeah. But, um, I'm really pleased too. That's really lovely to hear. So I'd like it to be five years, but then I'd worry. If it was that long, I'd worry then in between. Yeah. So the beast would probably pop up and go, ooh, have you had a check? Ooh, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and I think knowing the rational side of your brain says, if there is anything, you can't do anything about it. And also, you're in the system where they're going to check you. And so, you know, it's, it's good to be in that system. Yeah, that kind of fear of the unknown yeah. is a tricky thing. But sometimes, you know, we can get information and not know what to do with that either. But I think, you know, for me, we're thinking, what can our listeners take away from this is that actually your story is actually one of the first ones in, in, in this series where we haven't got just discrete events happening in terms of adversity, adversity that you've had to live with well, for over 40 years and that it has little peaks and troughs when it shows up and, and just how you've that's pretty remarkable, I think, I have to say, how you cope with that and how you've been able to, you know, build your metaphors up to help you and maybe people listening can find that helpful and think for themselves and I think that was one thing my my parents sort of used to go with me every year and or it was every three months and six months and 12 months and it they sort of normalized it in a way so we'd go out for a little lunch and stuff like that and I when I had to go to the hospital still now there was I remember there was a, a WRVS cafes we used to make nice cheese and onion roll and they still do and if there's one there I'll always have one because I just remember having that after my blood test, going for a sandwich until you wait for ages for the consultant because the blood, you, when you go to hospital, they get done on the same day. And he's late because he likes to read the, read the blood sample himself. Right. So he, can get the, he, can get, he can get it. But now it's sort of, you know, I might make cheese sandwich on the phone or something. Yeah, and what does that provide for you? Because even just those small snippets, I'm just thinking, what does that do for you, that... Cheese and onion sandwich or that cheese sandwich. What it's is that? Like a, it's like an anchor, and I suppose. Yes. The other anchor is it's a, such a funny one. I'm such, so sad they've closed now. A little chef. Do you remember little chef? Yes. A little chef restaurant. Early riser breakfast. <laughs> exactly. Is after my chemo, my mum used to always stop at the little chef, and she got to know the staff in there and take me along. But it's basically to give me food to be able to throw up. That was the, that was the yeah. mo in the whole process. But they used to, and so those staff became like an extended family of chemo day. Wow! And and I just remember it vividly. And I always used to get the same feeling of comfort going to a little chef, not from the food necessarily, but the actual comfort of that place. Yes, and what it symbolises, I guess. Um, it's yeah. just a shame they've changed, but um or they've closed. But I think the biggest impact, so that's that's a big impact, but I think the, the most negative impact, the beast I don't see as negative because I'm in the system and I'm lucky. I get an MOT every year and that, yeah. that, you know, not many people do. I think the biggest one is the scarring it left, physical scarring. Yeah. Because now nowadays the splenectomy is done by keyhole surgery 
um, and it leaves probably two holes, one for the camera to go in and one for the spleen to come out after it's been, you know, whatever they do to it. But mine goes right across my abdomen. Right. And right across it, they didn't even go down in that time. So, and it's it's left a huge hernia, which they can't do anything with because it's so old. So it always looks like a lopsided beer belly. And it really does. And so I'm still conscious of that today. But I've sort of, I, that's another kind of beast is when you go, that's when the beast comes up is when you go swimming or or whatever. But yes. it was um the, the film, uh, The Greatest Showman, the song This Is Me had two lines in it saying, um, I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. And when I heard that, it caused a bit of a breakdown at work. And I just heard it and it, I cried in the office, of all places to cry, in the office because this song just like smacked me in the face. But I've learned to grow ashamed of them. So I became one of the participants in a campaign called Behind the Scars, which is a photographer, a very young photographer with an amazing vision, photograph a thousand people's scars and the story behind them. And I had to go up to London because I won't take my top off in public at all. And and I had to get my top off and be photographed in a studio for um, the website. And so I'm on there and my story is of the scar. So I could actually see that then, how other people see it. And it's still, I still don't like the photos, but I'm pleased. I was just going to ask, what do you see then when you look at that? I don't see, it was really funny because she wanted, she said it actually doesn't look too bad. And that was like, no, it doesn't. But then I had to do a couple of poses, which shows how big it really is, which is like two hands, sort of linked to the side. And that showed the size of it. So that picture I hate. But the whole point is behind the scars and how people either like them or hate them. So yeah, she's, it's on the website. It's going to be part of her campaign. Yeah, a thousand people. So it was quite cathartic in a way. And um, to make me be photographed. Yeah, myself. I'm just thinking about that. That's the ultimate kind of lean in, isn't it? What did you use then? What did you have? What weapons did you have in your armory or your toolkit in order to allow you to put yourself for that? I think the person who was before me, because we were we're taken in, we had to go and we were given different times. So we didn't see each other, but two right. of us flashed a similar time. Yeah, and me and her, me and her were talking, and then she went off to be photographed. And the girl was beautiful. She had, you know. Lovely long hair, etc. But her, she had um, burns on her face, and her aunt was asking my story and said, "Oh, it must be awful, etc." And then she told me her her adopted daughter's story that basically her burns were purposely caused by um, pre-adoption as a result of a kettle being poured over. And I just think, then I thought, actually, I'm relaxed. And I know that sounds awful that somebody's story is always worse, but I have got that thing that you know, what's happening to me is happening worse to someone else. And so that was one thing. But to go into the studio, I suppose it was just like, it was a really dodgy area of London. So I wanted to get inside as quick as possible. So, <laughs> the other types of adversity then, just getting there, <laughs> feeling yeah. safe. Yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was in a really back sort of back street studio. And I was like, oh, what am I going to? It was just a case of do it now or never. Been selected. You've sent your own photograph off. She wanted to photograph you. Do it. This is the only chance you'll get. And if you turn away, you're always going to do the what if. What if is a big thing with me. Uh, If I don't do it, will I regret it? You must know exactly what questions I'm going to ask before I've even asked them. So that was going to be my next question. Because what I love and I ask a lot when I'm doing acceptance and commitment therapy with people is when you're struggling with something, should I, shouldn't I, you know, it's a real value, I really want to do this. Is You know, if you look back over the end of your life, what do you want to be able to say? 
you know, do I want to be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm really glad I did that? Or do you think you might struggle with, no. oh, I didn't, I wish I had. And it sounds like you were quite clear about what your values yeah, were. Yeah, because I've got the portfolio of photos and I can say I did it. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do it again. I still won't get my top off completely in public. But, um, you know, I started sea swimming and the biggest move to me is actually taking my top off on the beach to put another top on. Yes. which before would never have happened. So, you know, it's, um, it's quite interesting. Again, the what if, if I don't do it, I'm not going to go swimming. And it's more examples of that adversity and how you've, you know, it kind of, there it's been like a ripple, I guess. Maybe I use that metaphor sometimes with yeah. people I work with. There it is and it kind of shows up. But it also sounds like you have a lot of core values that allow you to lean into that yeah. adversity when it shows up again. And I've been following, we'll come back to that in a bit, but I've been following your journey with open water sea swimming. And, you know, there's some mornings I'll just live vicariously through your Instagram because I just, I just remarkable. But just if it's all right to share with Alyssa just what you've been through to be able to learn and do that. That. it can be quite intimidating going in deep cold water yeah um but you seem to get so much from it as I well do. And, and sense of well-being because this year is the first time i've I only started last year since moving here um because i'm right by the the river and the coast the, the beach literally just outside the front door last year i did it in a wetsuit and this year i've decided to go skins skins as they call it which is um swimming stuff so i thought i'm gonna have because why it's really warm <laughs> Yes, I yeah. skins. so I've done it and it's just wonderful and I don't swim out too far because you don't have to here because of the shelf that shows how deep it is that feeling of just like nature being around you rather than yes. chlorine and the swimming pool not not seeing all and there's every shape and size and that's why I like it as well there's not just your you know your Instagram fit person posing at that's the swimming pool absolutely it I'm so glad you said that so there's, there's two things there that I've picked up on that because I'm just thinking of people that are listening that are facing adversity have been through or are continuing maybe a longer journey like yourself is what things help you cope you know how because you've really transformed your life in the last couple of years haven't you in terms of your health and well-being journey which I just think is marvelous but the thing about I love you know me I scuba dive I love sea swimming open water swimming um and you're right you can't quite describe I'm sure we won't do it justice on a podcast that feeling of being in salt water particularly I find and nature but everybody doing what they want regardless of body shape size yeah and I love that that's part of it actually yeah I think yeah and I think you know the beach where I am has probably got teenagers having a barbecue just leaving off college or sixth form at the same time as us lot middle-aged professionals going out for a swim just because we want to have a dip to the pensioners who live down the road going for a dip together and then you've got young kids in their dinghies being tied to their parents so they don't float away having a swim as well and some are paddling some are swimming and so you actually don't care because they're not looking at you whereas in in a swimming pool I do have that conscience that somebody's looking at the scar because I remember kids pointing out to when I was swimming as a kid because they would you know, we all pointed out things as children because you're just, yeah. you know, don't it's, mean it's different. It's curiosity. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, yeah, it's just nobody's looking at you. They're trying to get into the water because it's so cold. That's the, what's that called? They're concentrating on. They're concentrating um, on just breathing as I do sometimes. You know, we can get, once it gets to your waist and we can yeah. do this. <laughs> in the river estuary bit, and that's when the waves are less. Um, But we're in the sea, you don't have any option to get in quick because the waves are hitting you anyway. So it does go over your waist and you're, you're too late. It's the kind of what I call trying to do it gracefully before the tide just does it for you. <laughs> I've given up on being graceful with sea swimming. But yeah, hopefully I'm going to try it. Now I'm in skins. 
it'll give me longer to get into my wetsuit and then I can hopefully do the winters. So I'd like to get into doing a bit of winter swimming. So there's something there about, you know, your values, taking them forward. And if we can go back to your childhood just for a minute, we've got so much. We could do a whole series, couldn't we? We could do David and Tara together. (laughs) It's it's reminiscent for anyone listening that we used to work together and sometimes we'd have long meetings because, well, I like talking. (laughs) At least I can get a word in on this one. Yeah, on the podcast you're allowed to answer and speak. I'm so interested also just in terms of other things that you've been through because you had quite a lot of adversity yeah. in childhood and you then, agreed that you're happy yeah. to talk about this which I'm really honoured that you That's do cool. but and just then, how it shaped you as an, an yeah. adult so then the way your life's gone as normal just country school up in Suffolk primary school and secondary school all fine I went to a different school to where my brothers went because my mother taught at it and then then we could have the option we could make an appeal but you couldn't before that so my poor brothers had to go to the same school as my mum was a teacher at whereas I went to a different one luckily but um I think the biggest impact on probably me from, you know, from the age of four was at the age of 15 when my brother was killed in a car accident right. and he was his eldest brother. And what it showed to me was just how your life can change in a split second. So we were having friends camp on, I remember we were having friends camp on our lawn, a house, and they were from France. My brother had um, gone to uh, the Silverstone Grand Prix because we were quite, not a racing family, but we really loved all going to the car races. And I remember my dad waking me up and just falling to pieces on the bottom of my bed. And I was 15 at this time, Gosh. Um, saying, we've got to go to the hospital because your brother's been in an accident. So we all piled in the car and had to drive quite away in Suffolk to the hospital he was taken to. And then we had a week of him in intensive care. And then the machine, you know, the doctors agreed to turn the machine off because... Um, in those times, intensive care was literally just a respirator and a heart monitor. They didn't have all the engineering these days of intensive cares. So, um, yeah, and, and, and hydration drips. But, um, yeah, I think that was when my sort of life changed again to recognise that actually life is short and very short and you don't know what's going to happen. And also yes. you don't know people because... I was, John was five years older than me, so he was 20 when he died. And when at his funeral, I remember they, the, the little church was jam packed and there was old, old people there. I was like, oh, are old people doing this thing? And um, it was an old people's home that my brother secretly visited to play cards with. And oh. you never know people. That was one of the things. You never know the person you're seeing and what's behind them. Yes. And I think that was the biggest shock to my parents as well. But I think that was a huge part in life where I just thought, you've got to do it today, otherwise you're never going to do it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, you don't know the person and life is too short. And you, don't, you, you haven't a clue what people's stories are who you're sitting next to on the bus. Because what I've really noticed, and when I follow your Instagram, which I follow avidly, is that over the last couple of years particularly, there's been a real shift, hasn't there, in that kind of mind-body approach. And I'm just wondering how much of what you've been through, as you say, you're your illness coping with that acute onset traumatic experience the loss of your brother but how that's kind of shaped your view of the world your rules for living all the things that psychologists are quite interested in when we're working with patients psychologists yeah (laughs) we can learn a lot from psychology can't we is how has that shaped you as a person what is it that's even just now actually in the last couple of years it's got you into the kind of mind body looking at 
transformation, I guess. Yeah. So when we were working together, I'd started my homeopathic training, which was a four-year, minimum four years, and then two years um, or 18-month supervision, supervisory practice. And I think I took about seven years, I think, to do it because I was it was it was a working full time and studying. I don't know how you did that because the team we were in, there was a lot going on. You know, we did. Yeah, we did remarkable work as a team. I think I always look back on that time with absolute fondness. Yeah, it's not a job that you can just go home and switch off from. So I'm always in awe that you could study and work. Probably that was the reason why it could, because I would absorb myself in a world that was totally different to the day. Yes. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Yeah. And that's probably a bit now because of my work now is just yeah. to come home and forget about it because I'm going sea swimming or I'm you know, cooking or going out for dinner or something like this. The reason why I went down the homeopathy route, because I think a lot of people probably wonder why, I wonder why sometimes, but was somebody said to me, you should be a homeopath. And they said it about three years prior to me starting my course. And I was looking at something to do. And I'd also got accepted at a seminary of all places to do my um, theological training. It was non-faith-based. It was completely interfaith. And I was going to sign up to five years to seminary at the time. And then I thought, what will I do with it? Because, you know, I'm not going to give up. And because it was non-denominational, you couldn't get a job afterwards. You had to be self-employed in, you know, ceremonial and stuff like this. Yes. And um, I thought, actually, this is five years. Homeopathy will be four years. Let's do a quicker one. And that's why I applied. <laughs> I, like, I like hearing about, you know, not everybody does things for these big grand reasons. Sometimes it just makes sense to. Yeah. We fall into things, which I sometimes think is meant to be as well. Yeah. So I went to see a homeopath. He was a very good homeopath in Brighton. And she was one of the only people who could make me cry. She really was. And it was because we actually held up a mirror to to the real person sitting in the chair. What she prescribed was the most amazing experience because I was telling her about the story like we're doing now. And she was looking at suppression points. And like you do in psychology or we do in, in, or you do in the psychology world, you look for those, those traumatic points and those trigger points, etc. In homeopathy, we look at suppression points. So what was it when I was younger that I'd suppressed? And what was it when John died that I suppressed? And yes. how did that affect my immune system, the physical side? And how did that affect the emotional and physical, emotional and psychological well-being? So it's a real holistic approach yeah. to, um, to, the, to the well-being of somebody. And um, I just remember her noticing something. She turned around to me and said, do you cry? And I went, no, I don't. That's one thing from my brother's funeral is that I don't cry. Right. Unless it's a real sort of, it's a sudden build up and then it's sort of a few tears. I remember just, it was just a horrendous emotional time at his funeral for me. And I was not taken away, but I was quickly whisked away afterwards because I can just remember sobbing. And so sobbing now to me is just, I can't do it much. And um, so, but she managed it. And she did it. But she said, I want you to take this, these tablets and this, this, this formulation and then come back and see me. We're going to talk about this again. And literally, I was in floods. And I was swearing at her. And she goes, I don't mind if you swear at me because I'm paying you to swear at me. You're paying me. It's like a complete so, um, catharsis, yeah. basically. Like, yeah. What do you get when you're helping people? Because, you know, in your career, you've had such varied things that you do, all in the helping capacity. But I'm just thinking particularly with your, your homeopathy, what do you get from helping people? 
the one the one thing I if I can is to stop people taking medication that they don't necessarily need. There's another yeah. word to, like people with low mood. If I see somebody with skin and they were depressed, then I'd refer them back to their GP straight away because I totally believe in working as a complementary therapy, not an alternative therapy. Right. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a complete difference in my mentality of what I do. If I notice somebody's in a low mood, I, I'll try and help them get out of that low mood because is it because of the skin or is it because of something else? Yes. Um, or refer them on to counselling or refer them to other other areas. So to see somebody going out of clinic happy once I discharge them, and if I don't see them again, <laughs> we do an MOT probably every six months, and that can just be a phone call because I don't want them to waste their money either. Ever the ethical David. <laughs> I'll never be rich. So I'm also wondering about the compassion element as well, because there is a, a scientific basis for compassion that, you know, doing acts of kindness, being compassionate towards other people can help us and our well-being as well. And yeah, I certainly get a lot from giving to others. Yeah. I think definitely I've always worked in the hospitally kind of health kind of setting, because I think that's that's probably one of my most during my cognitive period of development. Yeah, most of my time yeah. in one. So I, I still feel comfortable. Like when I did the job in Croydon and I was in that cute hospital, I loved it except for what the units I was talking about earlier because it, it just it's like home. It's not home. Yes. So, yeah. There's some kind of security there or containment or something. Yeah. That... I've worked at home with, with homeopathy as well. And I don't like it. I, so I've got a clinic or I, just before the pandemic, we sort of like whittled it down a bit, but still a clinic. It's actually nice to go to a clinic setting. So, yeah, I don't know. I think homeopathy, what I like about homeopathy is if you can help somebody gently come back to their homeostasis or their equal equilibrium. And we call it vitality or vital force in homeopathy. So I've turned that round to be vitality. So if somebody's got low vitality when they're coming in and they're leaving with with vitality, then we've succeeded. I love that concept. I've never heard of this before. There's something quite empowering about that. As well, I think people getting choice over what they do, making an informed choice, they can read up on things. But just looking, you know, from your journey, just a you know, four year old little baby, really going through all of that and how it shaped you as an individual. But do you know what really strikes me as well, David? It's not just how it shaped you and your career and your interests, but your values and your ethics and your ability. And I'm just wondering what that, whether that drew you to kind of patient work, you know, that ability to know what it's like to be on the other side and to feel scared and not know what's happening. I think that was a lot of to do with parental. Yeah. My parents have always been honest with me what happened. They've never, ever as an adult, but, well, when I was about 12 or 13, you know, when you're getting conscious, you don't want your parents in the room with the doctor. Yes. Um, yeah. I remember my first time being allowed to go into the consultant on my own to be told the results. And then they followed afterwards um, once I'd been told. Um, and that was like a real big empowerment thing at the age of 12 yeah. or 13. And then they, they saw, as an adult, they never made me go. I, when, I, when I've moved around the country with my training, stuff like that, I've always said I need to be referred to another hematologist, you know, because of this, this and this. And they do it. And I think what was the question? This is typical us. <laughs> I guess it's just in terms of how it shaped you oh, yeah. and ethic. Yeah. Your values as well as what you do for a living and, and Yeah. I don't know. I I think because where where I grew up, my father was a teacher in a, a an approved school as a, or in a boar stall as they used to be called. And we lived inside there. And I saw such sadness in some of his pupils from a very young age and I grew up with them 
And then how I got into nursing was totally by mistake because we used to have the handicapped opportunity play scheme, as it was called then, come to the school every summer. And I would go and play on their equipment with all my friends. And then, you know, we'd get to know the children who were also there, who had learning yes. disabilities or physical disabilities. Yes. Ah, and so as I got older, I became a helper in my school holidays. So every Tuesday and Thursday, I used to give up to go and play on their equipment, but you'd be able to look after somebody then. And I think seeing those boys in the school just made me think it's either that life choice because they were there for a reason of you know family reason or even crime you know a lot of these children here have got a choice and they they made that choice I don't want to make that choice so um so that kind of separation helping you decide what you want what you don't want in life yeah but it's so interesting that journey I'm always very interested where people's journeys come from we were really privileged weren't we to work with some really fantastic people and they're always so interested in what drew them to, to that line yeah. of work David it's been so lovely talking to you um it's like old days we could just this episode could go on for hours couldn't it I have to have you back on again because there's so much more I could talk to you about as well so I always ask every guest for a nugget so one adversity takeaway what would you like to share with our listeners as your one adversity takeaway from this podcast so I think it's acknowledge it's all happened acknowledge your own beast if you have one and just just let it be. And I think that that is key. So just let life be, just let it continue. But you have to acknowledge those times when your beast might might come up and just have a chat. I love that. It's really act-based. Thank you so much. So like, lean in, pay attention. To yeah, that I always beast. do that. I see, I, literally, I'm visualising that beast. I don't even know what he looks like, but he's just there. But it's to you, that metaphor helps you identify when he's showing up, how perhaps he's trying to dominate you. Yeah. change the way you behave if people want to find you where can they reach you in terms of your social media uh, which is simply underscore well-being underscore org so simply well-being org yeah value-based swimming and well-being stuff i will have to get down to Shoreham and yeah we'll have to go for a swim and I, I yeah we'll have to go for a swim I've done scuba diving in Barbados <laughs> right there's definitely a plan there so I'm not a mass fan of UK scuba diving either so <laughs> maybe we'll do a podcast episode from Barbados I'd definitely be up for that <laughs> thank you so much David it's an absolute honor this is I, I can't wait to get this episode out there for people and thank you just as well for sharing your story because I know you've been through a lot in your life and I really appreciate you being able to share that with um everyone that's listening so thank, thank you, you so let, much thank you for one at last let me get a wording when I, used to <laughs> you, I, <laughs> I could edit you couldn't i <laughs> oh yeah that's true thank you for listening to this episode of the adversity psychologist podcast it's so lovely to have you here i'm dr tara quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk you'll see everything i'm up to free resources my media work and my new covid recovery clinic as well remember to please rate and review my podcast it really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us the adversity psychologist podcast helping you one step at a time.